Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class from HowStuffWorks.com. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Tracy V. Wilson. And I'm Holly Fry. And today we're going to pick up where we left off in the story of Luis Alvarez. Uh, As we talked about in the previous episode, this was a scientist who made huge contributions in a very wide variety of fields from nuclear physics to paleontology. He was granted 22 patents, which feels like a lot to me, Mm -hmm. especially when you consider how vastly different these uh, were in, in terms of what they covered. One was for a golf training machine that he developed for President Eisenhower. Uh, one was for a color TV system. He also developed a stabilization system for lenses and binoculars and cameras. And that innovation went on to be used in zoom lenses and shoulder-held video cameras when those came along. He also presented a variable power lens to Polaroid, which came to market in 1986 although he had shown it to them about 20 years before. So he invented a lot of different stuff. Yeah. uh, In addition to all of his scientific accomplishments. He was also a member of the National Academy of Sciences, the American Philosophical Society, the American Physical Society, the American Academy of Arts and Sciences, and the National Academy of Engineering. And his accomplishments were so many and so far-reaching that even with two episodes, there are highlights and elements uh, and side trips that we could talk about around him and his work that we kind of have to leave out. Otherwise, it would become an entire podcast series mm-hmm. called How Luis Alvarez Works. It would be like nine <laughs> episodes long. Yeah. Where we left off in the previous episode, he had been creating new radar systems that were used during World War II, which helped save the lives of Allied pilots and other aircrew and allowed Allied planes to detect and destroy German U-boats. In this episode, we're going to look at his his other major portion of his work during World War II, as well as some of his more diverse contributions to science, which somehow wound up falling into the realm of sort of scientific mystery solving. Yeah. Uh, Luis actually left MIT in 1943, and he became part of the Manhattan Project. First, he spent a little while in Chicago, where scientists were working on creating the chain reactions that are necessary uh, in a nuclear bomb. And from there, he went to Los Alamos, New Mexico, and he became part of the steering committee for the laboratory there. The team at Los Alamos was working on bombs that used both uranium and plutonium as their fuel. While Luis participated in missions involving both of these types of weapons, most of his scientific work in New Mexico was on the plutonium bombs. Uh, the main part of his work had to do with creating their detonators. So he was the one who developed the detonators that were used in plutonium bombs. He flew aboard the B-29 bomber that dropped the bomb in the world's first atomic bomb test. The only visual documentation we have of the explosion from the air is a pair of sketches that he made, since nobody had thought to send a camera up aboard the plane. Yeah, there are plenty of pictures at, at ground level, but none from the air. He kind of relied on that mechanical sketching knowledge that he had gotten uh, in his high school time to to do some sketch work based on what he saw aboard the plane. In preparation for the bombs to actually be used during World War II, he, along with other scientists, moved to the island of Tinian, where they lived in tents and prepared the bombs and the bombers for their eventual missions. He was aboard the Enola Gay when it dropped the bomb known as Little Boy on Hiroshima. 
On the flight itself, he didn't wear a parachute. He decided that if uh, the plane were to be shot down, he didn't want to be captured. While he was returning home from having witnessed this bombing, he wrote this letter to his son, Walt, who was four years old at the time. What regrets I have about being a party to killing and maiming thousands of Japanese civilians this morning are tempered with the hope that this terrible weapon we have created may bring the countries of the world together and prevent further wars. Alfred Nobel thought that his invention of high explosives would have that effect by making wars too terrible. But unfortunately, it had just the opposite reaction. Our new destructive force is so many times worse that it may realize Nobel's dream. That's quite a letter to write. Yeah, especially to your tiny child. Your four-year-old having just witnessed the destruction of a city through one weapon. Uh, Luis flew on the Nagasaki mission as well, this time aboard another B-29 aircraft, the Great Artiste, rather than the one that was deploying the bomb. Just before the second bomb was dropped on Nagasaki, the Great Artiste dropped canisters containing telemetry devices like the ones, uh, like the one Luis had created for the bomb, along with a letter written by him and two other physicists. The letter was addressed to Japanese physicist Ryokichi Sagane, who had worked with Luis at Berkeley before the war. Luis had remembered their connection and he hoped that by writing to him, he could get information about Americans' nuclear capabilities to the Japanese in a way that could put an end to the war. Here's that letter. We are sending this as a personal message to urge that you use your influence as a reputable nuclear physicist to convince the Japanese general staff of the terrible consequences which will be suffered by your people if you continue in this war. You have known for several years that an atomic bomb could be built if a nation were willing to pay the enormous cost of preparing the necessary material. Now that you have seen that we have constructed the the production plants, there can be no doubt in your mind that all the output of these factories, working 24 hours a day, will be exploded on your homeland. Within the space of three weeks, we have proof-fired one bomb in the American desert, exploded one on Hiroshima, and fired the third this morning. We implore you to confirm these facts to your leaders and to do your utmost to stop the destruction and waste of life, which can only result in the total annihilation of all your cities if continued. As scientists, we deplore the use to which a beautiful discovery has been put. But we can assure you that unless Japan surrenders at once, this reign of atomic bombs will increase many-fold in fury. Uh, to my friend Sagane, with best regards... From Louis W. Alvarez. Luis and Sagane actually met four years after the war was over, at which point Luis added his signature to a copy of the letter that Sagane had. Yeah, this letter did actually get to the Japanese government. It didn't get to Sagane until after the war was over. Um, But it, it it did get to its intended recipients. Just digesting that whole thing. Yeah. It's so bizarre. Well, and the, like many of the scientists who worked on the Manhattan Project, Luis was really horrified at the level of destruction and death that the atomic bombs had the power to cause. But since World War II ended so quickly after the second one was dropped, he really had no doubt that the United States had done the right thing. 
Um, he really felt like the bombing of Nagasaki, which that's a question that comes up. Like, we had already bombed Hiroshima. Mm-hmm. Did we also need to bomb this other city? Uh, he really felt like that was necessary to bring an end to the war. Uh, everybody knew that it took a whole lot of uranium to make one bomb, and it took a whole lot of time to make that uranium. And if we had, his point of view was that if we had only bombed uh, Hiroshima, people would have been like, well, it's going to be a while. They would have thought it was a one-off. Yeah, like a, they were, it's yeah. going to be a while before they can make another one. So he really felt like that that second event was necessary to end the war. And he also felt sure that if something had gone wrong and they had not perfected the bombs or if the bombs had not been dropped, uh, Hiroshima and Nagasaki would have been destroyed anyway through more conventional warfare techniques and incendiary bombs. Uh, and a departure from pretty much m- the overwhelming majority of other Manhattan Project scientists. He also thought that the United States should continue its nuclear weapons program uh, and develop a hydrogen bomb. On a note about his personal life, Louise and Geraldine divorced not long after World War II. He remarried in 1958 to Janet Landis, who had worked with him in the lab at Berkeley, and they had two children together named Donald and Helen. Louise returned to Berkeley after the war was over. And at that point, he turned his focus to high-energy atomic research. Like some of the stuff that we talked about in the previous episode, <laughs> this is kind of esoteric work, uh, but it involves bubbles. So, <laughs> so a little lighter in tone than what we've been talking about. Yeah, we're going to talk about it in a little bit more detail because it's also what he won his Nobel Prize for. Um, so there had already been uh, electron accelerators for, in use for some years uh, before he went back to Berkeley. But he wanted to create a proton accelerator. And he did so. Uh, he completed a 40-foot proton accelerator in 1947. In 1953, Luis met University of Michigan physicist Donald Glasser, who had just invented the bubble chamber that we alluded to a minute ago. So unlike particle accelerators, which produce the particles that scientists want to study... The bubble chamber detected the particles that had been produced. So in a bubble chamber, particles pass through a fluid and they leave this trail of bubbles behind in their wake. Luis realized that this invention could be used to detect particles from a syncocyclotron, which is a circular particle accelerator that had just been built at Berkeley. Luis made some improvements to the bubble chamber, uh, including using liquid hydrogen uh, as the fluid and developing more sensitive recording and transmission. He then worked on making the chamber even bigger so it could record the trails of more particles. The first chamber was a one-inch glass tube, and about five years later, he was actually using one that measured 72 inches. So, thinking big. So, when a particle passed through the hydrogen, which was about 2,500 degrees below zero Celsius, it would heat the hydrogen to the boiling point and leave this little trail of bubbles in its wake. Photographs would record what this trail looked like. And then Luis and his students developed lots of tools for scanning and measuring all of these photos. Um, The bubble chamber could produce more than a million photographs in one year, and they needed to look at and analyze and record all of these photographs to see the trails that it was picking up. Little tiny bubble trails. I know. Uh, Using the bubble chamber, he discovered a tremendous number of elementary particles. He also discovered extremely short-lived particles known as resonance states. 
Luis won the Nobel Prize for this work in 1968, and in the ceremony, his methods were cre- were credited with making practically all of the other discoveries about particle physics possible. Side note, there are a whole lot of Nobel Prizes that come out of University of California at Berkeley. Yeah, that lab is clearly... Um enabling a lot of scientific exploration. Yeah, there are there are other labs that uh, that have more, but the, <laughs> there's still a whole lot yeah, coming from Berkeley. Uh, and after this, Luis's, Luis's career started to put his physics knowledge into practical use to solve mysteries. I know. So the first mystery was, are there any hidden chambers in the Pyramid of King Kefren in Giza? Great mystery to try to solve. He went to Egypt in 1965 as part of an Egyptian-American expedition, and they used cosmic rays to try to look for areas of lower density uh, within the pyramid, which they theorized could be hidden chambers. Uh, unfortunately, the solution to this mystery was not very satisfying because the answer was no. Yeah, you always hope. It's like Geraldo's vault, right? Uh, his next mystery was whether the official account of the Kennedy assassination was right. It started after Life magazine published enlargements of frames, frames from the famous Zapruder film, which is the infamous footage that actually caught the assassination as it happened. Luis was captivated by these images, and he spent Thanksgiving weekend going over them in detail, using the same skills he had used to look at bubble trails from the bubble chamber. So he was so accustomed to really, like, looking at fine-level, tiny details that he just transferred that scientific approach to looking at grainy photographs. Yeah, and what he caught, the anomaly that he caught in these pictures were streaks in sunlight, or streaks of sunlight, that were on the body of the limousine. And these streaks were longer in some places than in others. Uh, he eventually concluded that this was because Abraham Zapruder had involuntarily moved uh, his hand. Like he had a very steady hand that tracked the limousine really well. Um, his theory was that he he moved involuntarily when he heard gunshots. Right. As many people will do. You jump a little bit when there's yes. a startling noise. CBS, which asked for Luis's findings, did a recreation to try to confirm what Luis had found. And their consensus was that it was possible to connect when these streaks occurred to when the shots were actually fired. So Luis's point of view is that the, these streaks on the film were a more accurate indication of how many shots were fired and when they were fired than the more obvious movements that people had been associating with the shots. So there was like a moment when the president grabbed at his throat and they were like, that was one shot. And then there's the moment when his head snaps back. They're saying that's the second shot. Right. Um, but the conclusion based on this looking at the images was that, no, there were actually two shots and one of them missed uh, that are tracked when the streaks in the sunlight are a different length. Interesting. I know. This actually uh, has led to, to a lot of uh, debunking of uh, conspiracy theorists. Um, yeah. Which was the motivation of, of some of this work. Yeah, there were some Mythbuster-esque sorts of experiments to try to figure out exactly why the president's head recoiled the way it did if he was really only hit from one direction. And Luis imagined the scenario as involving a melon being shot since it was painful for him to try to imagine this happening to a man and, in fact, the president who was uh, quite popular. Well, and someone that he personally admired. Yeah, 
He and a friend named Sharon, nicknamed Buck Buckingham, then replicated the experiment with actual melons reinforced with glass fiber tape that they shot at a firing range. And what they found uh, in that test was basically that their melon, when shot, moved the way John F. Kennedy's head did when shot once in one from one direction. So even though his head sort of recoils. Right, which had led some people to think that there were that there was a second shot from behind. Yeah. Uh the their conclusion was no, that that was that was just physics. That's actually a normal movement. Yes. Uh, He went on to do all kinds of physical analysis on the film to try to pinpoint exactly how fast the car was traveling and where it was exactly at any given point in time, which is one of those things where today sounds just like an easy task. (laughs) Because today we have much more sophisticated recording and measuring techniques than we did at that point. Um, But that, that was also a lot of like... Uh, looking at how people were clapping and how fast the car was going and, and where they seemed to be in relation to other things to really give a moment-by-moment account of exactly where the car was uh, and where other people were and where the shooter was, all of that. I could see where someone with a physics mind who likes to analyze things and kind of part it out into mathematical equations would really get into doing that. Yeah. It's kind of, even though it's a very different field, it's sort of the same methodology. Right. To breaking it down. And later on, Louis served on the committee of, uh, the committee on ballistic acoustics, which did an 18 month study into the sound of gunshots during the assassination and whether there was more than one gun, gunman or a shot fired from the grassy knoll. Uh, their conclusion from a report released in 1982 was no, there was no shot from the grassy knoll, and the acoustic data that had been used to support the idea of a second gunman came in an entire minute after the president had been shot. The final mystery that Louis put his scientific mind to work trying to solve was what happened to the dinosaurs. And this is work that he did with his son, Walter, also known as Walt, who was a geologist at the University of California at Berkeley. So here's their theory. 65 million years ago, a giant asteroid slammed into the Earth, causing enormous earthquakes and tsunamis and clogging the atmosphere with dust, catastrophically affecting life on the planet and wiping out the dinosaurs in the aftermath, along with 75% of all species that were alive at the time. Yep. Uh, so here's how they arrived at this, at the time, cuckoo hypothesis. Uh, it, it was not well received when they started making it known that that was what they thought happened. In 1977, Walter had been studying soil layers in Italy because he was a geologist. He found this layer of clay between two layers of limestone. And that layer of clay marked the end of the Cretaceous period and a worldwide mass extinction. Uh, That's what was there in the geologic record. Under the layer of clay were lots of fossils of lots of different species of microscopic marine animals. And on top of that layer, there was only one species of fossils. And there were no microscopic marine animal fossils in this layer of clay itself. Walter brought these samples back to his father, who sent them to a couple of nuclear chemists at Berkeley to have a look. And they found that the clay was about 600 times richer in iridium than the limestone around it. And this raised some eyebrows. Uh, Iridium is very rare on Earth, but it's really common in extraterrestrial objects. 
so further research found that this iridium layer existed on other sites all around the world, all in the same layer of the geologic record. Um, and all of the clay samples also contained lots and lots of soot. So it became quickly apparent that the soil layer full of iridium seems to exist all over the world. Luis started poring over astronomy research to figure out exactly what had brought this iridium to Earth. He came up with all kinds of kooky ideas uh, involving supernovas, a piece of Jupiter. Uh, you know, he was basically brainstorming what could have done it. But then he concluded that an asteroid or a comet was the most logical. So something huge that would have also vaporized on impact. Then he started comparing how much volcanic rock was released from the Krakatoa volcanic explosion in 1888 He compared that to the iridium layer to try to figure out how big the asteroid would have had to be to make that much stuff. And eventually he concluded that it would have had to have been uh, at least 10 kilometers across. The father-son Alvarez team, along with nuclear chemists Frank Asaro and Helen Michel, published a paper in Science in 1980, theorizing that a massive asteroid impact had created this iridium layer and led to the extinction of the Cretaceous period. At the time, this idea was extremely controversial. Uh, the prevailing belief at that point was that volcanoes had wiped out the dinosaurs, and nobody really liked this idea that, that it had really been an asteroid. Then, in 1991, the Chicxulub crater was discovered off the Yucatan Peninsula which is a giant impact site that was both the right age and the right size to have caused the iridium layer on impact. At that point, it became a lot more respected as a theory. And then in 2010, a panel of 41 experts published a paper concluding that, yes, following an exhaustive review of all that data, the asteroid that struck the Earth off the Yucatan Peninsula was indeed what wiped out the dinosaurs not just a bunch of volcanic explosions, although there probably would have been some volcanic explosions following this impact. Yeah, and we would be remiss if we left out uh, the point that the prevailing theory today is that birds are, in fact, descended from dinosaurs. Yeah, so wiped out the dinosaurs, in air quotes. Kind of an oversimplification. Yeah, the dinosaurs as as we think of them. Yeah, that was really... Luis Alvarez's last big uh, scientific announcement slash achievement um, was this theory of what happened at the end of the Cretaceous period. He died of cancer on September 1st, 1988, when he was 77 years old. That's quite a life. It's a huge, yeah. So he wrote a memoir called Alvarez, unsurprisingly. Um <laughs> Uh, which just, it's written in this just very candid, off-the-cuff voice. Like he's just chatting with a friend. Like, yeah, he's just chatting. He's talking about all these things that he did and just all these scientific problems that he decided to put his mind to, to try to solve. Um, I think he had not talked a whole lot publicly about his work during World War II with the Manhattan Project until the book came out. He talks about that really candidly also. Um, which I think considering how, how much of classroom study is devoted to, uh, the impact of the bombs being dropped in the end of the war and whether that was the right decision to make, uh, it is interesting to get 
a viewpoint from one of the scientists who worked on the project who was ultimately in favor of the decisions that were made because a lot of the opinions that you hear about are the opposite when it comes to the Manhattan Project scientists. Yeah, that they really had misgivings. Yeah, he's really an outlier in the the sort of aftermath of that in terms of, of, of most of the scientists who worked on the Manhattan Project. Such a life. Yeah. I love that his work is all over the map. It re- well, I love it too, even though it, it meant that some, of, <laughs> some of it is difficult to think about, but. Yeah. Ugh. I'm going to stick with the dinosaur part. That's my favorite. I like the dinosaur part. <laughs> and I like the, I like the bubble chamber part. Even yeah. though, even though the discoveries that came from the bubble chamber are, you know, of the sort that are interesting in, in the realm of physics. Yeah. And, and hard to apply to everyday life in a way that's relatable to people. Yeah. I love the idea that there's these little particles and they're making little bubbles and then we're taking <laughs> pictures of them. <laughs> I like how in your head physics became really cute. In some it way. did. <laughs> I could just tell as you're talking about it's, it. It's my little bubble. Yeah. Physics is magic. There you go. Hey, got some listener mail on the docket? I do. This is from Kevin. Kevin says, I was really intrigued by the segment where you introduced Benjamin Banneker, as it reminded me of my own family's history. Our family would have been counted in that small group of free blacks in Maryland that you mentioned in the podcast. I'm sorry that I'm sending this so late, but I get a little behind on listening to the podcast sometimes. Kevin, that is fine. (laughs) Everyone who is behind on listening to the podcast, that is fine. I am also behind on listening to all of my podcasts. Kevin goes on to say, my ancestor, Robert Pearl, was born either in 1685 or 1686 in Maryland. He was the son of a female slave, and as a slave, he was called Mulatto Robin. His father is unknown, but it's theorized that his father was his owner, Richard Marsham. Interestingly, Robert had been married to Catherine Brent, daughter of Princess Mary Kittimakwand of the Piscataways, though Catherine died prior to the alleged fathering. He later married Anne Calvert, daughter of Maryland's first governor and granddaughter and niece of the first and second Lords Baltimore, respectively, and mother-in-law to Marsham's daughter from his first marriage. On Richard Marsham's death in 1713, he stipulated in his will that Robin slash Robert be emancipated along with Robert's wife and son, but not until he reached age 35, seven years later. Robert was unique as a slave in several regards. He was a skilled carpenter, not an unskilled laborer. He probably could read and write, as evidenced by inventories, which show among his belongings writing paper and ink. After his emancipation, Robert was quite successful, and he went on to acquire numerous farms, livestock, and slaves. Court records show that he frequently was able to successfully sue to recover debts, including from whites, despite his race. In 1744, he moved out west to what soon would become Frederick County, Maryland. There, he leased a 200-acre dwelling plantation in Carrollton. During most of his tenure there, it was managed by Charles Carroll of Annapolis, but during the last few years, it had passed down to his son, Charles Carroll of Carrollton, of whom I assume you are familiar. There's an interesting letter written by Charles Carroll of Carrollton complaining about Robert's son, uh, Robert's son's assuming Robert's lease after his passing, a pretty cool familial mention by a signer. By the time of his death, he had sold off all of his land that he had previously purchased, only keeping the leased land where he lived, but he had acquired significant wealth. One account estimates that the value of his state, his estate would have placed him in the top 5 to 10% for the colony in that time period. He owned, at the time of his death, 14 slaves, which were passed along to his children. 
none were manumitted. To my modern mind, it has always been difficult to understand how a former slave could own slaves, but I do not presume to understand the environment of the time. And then he goes on to say that he loved our mention of Jonathan Colton's I'm Your Moon in the in the Pluto podcast because that was a song that he and his wife chose to use for their wedding. That's so sweet. Thank you so much, Kevin. Yes. Such uh, a cool letter. Such a cool letter. I love number one. I love when people's uh, personal stories intersect with stuff that we talk about in the podcast mm-hmm. in one way or another. I love when people have this in-depth knowledge of their family history also. Yeah. I know not everyone has the opportunity to have such an in-depth knowledge of their family history. But um, what, when people are able to share stuff about their personal ties to, to what goes way, way, way back, it's really cool. It is. Um, and in addition, uh, I appreciate that, that uh, Kevin shared this story with us in spite of his conflicted feelings uh, about that part of the family history. Yeah. So thank you so much, Kevin. It is. It's uh, you know it is great to contextualize what we've talked about with you know a very real world connection to it that's modern and that we understand and can identify with. Yeah, fabulous, Kevin. You rock. Thank you very much. If you would like to write to us about this or some other subject, we're at historypodcast.discovery.com. We're also on Facebook at facebook.com slash historyclassstuff and on Twitter at mistinhistory. Our Tumblr is at mistinhistory.tumblr.com and we are putting things away on Pinterest. If you would like to learn more about one of the areas that Luis Alvarez put his thought into, uh, we are not going to make you try to spell Chicxulub in our <laughs> search bar, but you could if you wanted to and found you could find a great article about what if that asteroid had missed the Earth. Uh, you can also put in the words nuclear bomb and you will find how nuclear bombs work. You can learn about all that and a whole lot more at our website, which is HowStuffWorks.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. Audible.com is the leading provider of downloadable digital audiobooks and spoken word entertainment. Audible has more than 100,000 titles to choose from to be downloaded to your iPod or MP3 player. Go to audiblepodcast.com slash history to get a free audiobook download of your choice when you sign up today.